A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I am back in my box. I am uh, back home in Virginia after a uh, what was supposed to be just a quick, uneventful, albeit a red-eye flight back to the East Coast on uh, late Thursday, early Friday. It did not did not end up that way. No, we were uh, we were in the air for about an hour or so, and uh, I, I, I fell asleep. That was the plan. Going to sleep on the plane. Going to land at like 7 a.m. in uh, North Carolina, drive a few hours to get back home, and then start riding. And then uh, I was awakened from my blissful slumber by the, uh, uh, the sound of the captain coming over the intercom and uh, saying, Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to uh, have to make a uh, little diversion here and land in Denver because of an incident on board the aircraft. So yeah, we uh, we we had a midnight stop in Denver, and uh, at first, pilot said, you know, uh, it should just take a minute or two. Got to get somebody off the plane. There'll be paramedics and authorities there once we get there, and we should have you back up in the air. Hey, you know, who knows? We may even land on time. <laughs> yeah, four hours later, uh, a trip by the uh, Denver Airport Police. The FBI apparently got involved. I still haven't been able to find any information about this. I've got to try to do some public information requests to actually figure out what was going on. But uh, it was a, it was not a short delay. It was a long delay. And by the time I got home, it was uh, something like, I don't know, 30 plus hours without sleep. It was uh, not good. Not, not good. The great news, though, is that the only bad part about this year's SHOT Show was actually getting there and coming home. Once I was on the ground in Las Vegas, it was great. Um, yeah, attendance was down, as you would expect, right, with a uh, pandemic going around. But uh, according to the National Student Sports Foundation, still around 40,000 or so attendees. Uh, and because the show had actually expanded in size, so it wasn't being uh, held at just the Sands Convention Center, but also now at the, the Caesars uh, Forum, uh, which was sort of a, a, across a walkway, um, it seemed even less crowded than normal. Now, if you're still going down that main hallway, if you've ever been to SHOT Show, you know, the main hallway into the Sands Convention Center, you know, that, that was still pretty busy. But once you got inside the show itself, uh, you were able to get around a lot easier than you normally are. Obviously, that's not the primary concern for folks, but, uh, you know, for us media types, you need to get from point A to point B to point C. Uh, yeah, that was a big help. Um, the absence of some of the uh, bigger companies like uh, Sig and Beretta and Benelli, I, I think that, that was noticeable for sure. Um, but what was interesting to me is that there were still so many companies there that, while you notice the companies that, that did not have a presence, um, there was still plenty uh, to, to, to look at, uh, plenty of new products on display. Uh, and again, I think he had a little bit of time to spend with some of the the smaller companies. Uh, I mentioned, you may have seen my piece over the weekend about uh, uh, the ghost guns and uh, smart guns, both on display uh, at SHOT Show. You had the uh, the, the uh, company Smart Guns from uh, Kansas that was displaying its RFID-equipped 1911-style 9mm available for the uh, low, low cost of uh, I think it's $2,195. Yeah, $2,195. Uh, it should be available for uh, civilians a little bit later on in the year. Uh, meanwhile, the Ghost Gunner 3, available for purchase at about $2,500. And uh, you could make your own 
lower receivers at home from a uh, block of solid aluminum. So there you go. Uh, two very, again, competing visions of the future of firearms. And I expect that the the space, the gun-owning space, is probably big enough for for both. It's just that the gun control activists, they only want one. They don't, they don't, they, yeah, they're, they're not interested in a future that includes, quote-unquote, ghost guns. They're not even interested in a future that includes, quote-unquote, dumb guns. They are all in on smart guns, uh, not just the company, but the, uh, the idea itself. And... Again, I, I still think that the uh, the, the questions and the uh, issues that uh, consumers have about, uh, quote-unquote, smart gun technology is still there. It's still present. In fact, I, I think that it is inherent uh, in uh, the idea of smart guns that, look, it introduces another point of failure in the operation of a firearm, whether it's you're talking about RFID technology, whether you're talking about biometric technology, and for a lot of gun owners... Making the gun smart, quote unquote, doesn't seem like a smart idea because it increases uh, the opportunities for that gun to fail when you need it to go bang. So I, I think uh, Cody Wilson from Defense Distributed said, uh, I asked both uh, Cody Wilson and uh, Tom Holland from Smart Guns to sort of look ahead 10 years in the future and to, to, to tell me what they thought would be more prevalent, uh, quote unquote, ghost guns or smart guns. Um, Tom Holland of Smart Guns said, uh, well, I, I, I think that there should be space for, for both, which is a, a very uh, anodyne answer to give. Cody Wilson said, you know, he thinks the government is going to put the thumb on the scale in terms of smart guns. And I think that that's right. Uh, and uh, that they're going to continue to try to go after, quote unquote, ghost guns, home built uh, firearms. I think that that is also correct. I don't know that you can stop the signal, though. Again, you might be able to, uh, in some states, or maybe even at the federal level, uh, amidst a lot of resistance from gunners, you might be able to declare it's illegal to start making your own firearm. But I don't know how enforceable that's going to be, and I certainly think it's going to be an incredibly unpopular uh, law, I would say akin to, you know, uh, prohibition uh, of alcohol. That, that would be just a huge step. Uh, in the wrong direction. And I think that it would come with uh, a, a great amount of pushback uh, and, frankly, noncompliance uh, on the part of a lot of Americans. But uh, overall, I thought it was a, a really good shot. It was great seeing people for the first time in two years. So i got to say hey to Mark Walters from Armed America Radio, who's going to join us a little bit uh, later on in the week here with his look back at SHOT Show. Uh, all of our guests, Stephen Gutowski, Tony Simon, Ryan Petty, um, and the reason, by the way, why we were guest-driven last week uh, is because, A, we're a guest-driven show. In fact, we're going to be talking with uh, Nikki Gozer here momentarily. Uh, but also because with one guy, there is no way to cover all of the products and all of the gear uh, and firearms on display at SHOT Show. So I just made a, a conscious decision pretty early on that I wasn't going to be the guns and gear guy this year. Because as soon as I decided, as soon as I tried to be the guns and gear guy, then all of a sudden it's, well, why didn't you cover this, 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 this? So I just decided, you know what, I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. There are plenty of other websites out there who uh, had, uh, you know, folks who were roaming the aisles, teams of uh, folks roaming the aisles. Uh, lonely old me decided to focus on the people, uh, on the personalities, on those individuals uh, exercising their right to keep and bear arms and uh, working to help others exercise their right to keep and bear arms. And that's what we did at SHOT Show. So I do hope you enjoyed the coverage. We're going to have more stories throughout the week, just stuff I did not have a chance to uh, to get to either because I was 
too busy uh, talking to folks on the ground or was uh, incoherent from a lack of sleep when I arrived home. But uh, there is more coverage of the 2022 Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show on the way at barryandarms.com. And as I mentioned, our guest today, we're not talking all shot show. No. In fact, uh, we're talking about a, a very serious topic. Uh, Nicole Gozer, who is the executive director of the Crime Prevention Research Center, uh, has a piece at Town Hall right now talking about uh, National Stocking Awareness Month. As you know, Nikki Gozer uh, is the victim of a stalker herself. In fact, her husband, Ben, was murdered by uh, Nikki Stalker. And Nikki wants to ensure that nobody else goes through what she has gone through. And uh, she and a co-author have uh, written a, a piece that uh, not only has some really good practical advice for individuals who might be dealing with a stalker, but but is also, I think, a, a very... Um, hard-hitting reminder that when it comes to protection, uh, having a piece of paper, having an order of protection, that is great. But you also need to think very seriously about something that packs a little bit more punch than a piece of paper. If you are worried about somebody inflicting harm on you if you're worried about a stalker showing up where you live where you work and hurting you a a piece of paper alone may not be enough to provide the protection that you need and again that's a uh, takeaway that nikki gozer uh, wants more folks to uh, to understand take a look and a listen nikki thank you so much for coming on the show it's so good talking with you today Thank you for having me on, Cam. Good to see you. Absolutely. And you've got a must-read piece at uh, Town Hall right now. It shouldn't take a bullet to the head for the criminal justice system to take stalking seriously. Uh, I didn't realize this. Uh, January is National Stalking Awareness Month. This is actually the 18th uh, National Stalking Awareness Month. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And as you write in your piece at Town Hall, the the reason why we even have this month is because of one of your co-authors, Debbie Riddle, whose younger sister was murdered back in 2003. Obviously, Nikki, you know, you have your own experience uh, with a stalker who robbed you of your wonderful husband, Ben. Um, And and I, I have to ask, first of all, before we get into some of the practical aspects of what women can do if they are the victim of a stalker, if you can tell me about how you and Debbie connected and and how you have tried to channel your your grief and what you all have gone through into ensuring that that other women never have to experience and other family members never have to experience the pain that you all have felt. Sure. Well, actually, I was watching the investigation Discovery Channel one night, and I saw this episode about this woman, Peggy, and how she had this awful stalker, and he ended up murdering her and killing himself. And the woman that spoke on film was her sister, Debbie, and she was so eloquent and so heartfelt. And what she said really touched me. Um, because I feared the same things that her sister feared. And I went on social media and I reached out to her on, on Facebook and we started talking back and forth. And next thing you know, we're writing an op-ed piece together and she's just an incredible lady. And I'm hoping we're, we're talking about maybe um, meeting up 
this spring and going for a hiking trip. I, I really want to meet her because I admire her a great deal. That is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you two have been able to connect and, and not just on that professional level, not just on the activism level, but, but also that personal connection as well. So I hope that you're able to get together this spring, but, but when it comes to the experiences that, that you both have had and the knowledge and wisdom that you want to share uh, with, with other people, what do you want folks to know? I mean, you talk about some of the very basics here. What is stalking, right? Which you call a pattern of repeated unwanted behavior towards a specific person, which would cause any reasonable person uh, to feel fearful, intimidated, or harassed. I think one of the first things that, that comes to mind is, okay, so let's say you're experiencing that. What's the first step that you should take? Should you immediately go to law enforcement? Should you try to, you know, deal with this yourself to maybe, you know, just try to block that individual? What's the first step that somebody who's think, going through this should do? I think the very first step is number one, being able to rec recognize that it is stalking. Um, a lot of women and men too, you know, men are stalked as well. I think right now the statistics according to the CDC is like one in six women and one in 17 men in their lifetime will be stalked, which is really concerning. But I think a lot of people at first, they don't realize they're being stalked. And then eventually it becomes apparent to them. So that's the first step is recognizing that you are being stalked. Um, and then I think it's really important that you tell your friends and your family, your entire inner circle, should really know about the stalking and the person doing it. You need to keep tight records on anything and everything the stalker is doing. Um, and then, yeah, I think that once you have a pattern of behavior um, established, then absolutely you should get law enforcement involved. Um, unfortunately, there are still some law enforcement officers out there that don't take this as seriously as they should. I, you know, some of them just think, oh, this guy's just being annoying. You know, he'll quit. It's not a big deal. He's heartbroken or whatever. You know, he's got a crush. But unfortunately, these things can escalate and they can be very, very harmful and even deadly. You know, and, and, and that escalation um, obviously is, 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 you know, the real concern here, right? I mean, it's bad enough if you've got somebody who is simply showing up at your work or, or harassing you, repeated phone calls. But when it when it turns into those physical threats, that's when this goes from maybe worrisome to to downright dangerous, right? Um, and and I'm I'm curious because what do you think the law? How how good is the law right now at addressing this? Because I've spoken to people who have they've had stalkers and they've gone to law enforcement, and law enforcement's response has been, "Look, we're glad you're documenting this. We're glad you came to us, but." Um, you know, if we were to charge them right now, it would be a misdemeanor offense and chances are that might actually escalate things even further. Um, so sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I've had friends who, whose advice from law enforcement has been monitor, you know, keep track of what's going on. But, but if you pursue charges, you might actually make things worse. That's, that is a possibility. I think that the victim has to make the best choice uh, for themselves, what they feel is the best choice. And 
And that's what I really want to tell people is, you know, you've got to make the best decision for yourself um, and, and what will help you. And only you really know that for yourself. As far as, as me, I now have a lifetime order of protection against my stalker. Um, and, you know, I carry a gun every single day to protect myself and my loved ones. And I just think that victims need to know what all of their options are. You know, we have seen so many times where people are told to change their entire life. So many of these stalking resource groups, uh, women's support groups, uh, feminist groups, uh, victims' rights groups, they give all of this advice and a lot of it may be needed, like you might want to move, you might want to get involved in the address protection program, uh, you might want to change your name, you might want to take a different uh, route to your job, you might want to get a different job. You know, there's like all of these things to run and hide and become anonymous. But the one thing that they don't really talk about is your basic human right of self-defense. And they certainly don't talk about firearms, legally owned firearms with training as a way to protect yourself and your loved ones. And look, someone may decide that's not right for them and that's okay. But I think that all of the options should be given so that that victim can make the best decision for themselves. Well, absolutely. I mean, particularly when, you know, and, and, and you look up uh, these defensive gun use stories on a regular basis as well, Nick. I mean, we see these stories of women who were forced to defend themselves, but were able to protect themselves when an abusive ex or, or somebody else shows up at the house. That's not quite the same as a stalker, but uh, I would say it's, you know, in that same ballpark, it's in the same neighborhood. These, these stories exist. And what you're saying is that a, a lot of these uh, organizations that are designed to help women who, who have a stalker, they don't even discuss this. Are, 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 are they anti-gun or is it just like we don't talk about it? We don't we don't mention gun ownership. You know, I'm not really entirely sure uh what the reason is. I, I, I don't know. I just, you just know they're not me. talking about it. Yeah. They're just not talking about it. And in my op-ed piece, you notice I talk about owning a firearm and how I protect myself. And that's a choice that I made because I wanted, you know, if there's somebody out there reading my op-ed, who's a victim of stalking, I feel like it's important to let them know, look, you can do this. You can go get training. You know, you can, you look, ultimately nobody wants to tell people this, but I'm going to tell you as a victim of stalking myself at the end of the day, ultimately you are your own first responder. No one is going to care about protecting you the way that you care about protecting you. I think it's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I got to tell you, Nikki, I mean, one of the the most disappointing things that I've seen over the past couple of years in, in Virginia, obviously, you know, when the Democrats took uh, uh, control in 2019, they passed a lot of really bad uh, gun bills, but they also rejected one bill that I thought would have been a great improvement to state law. And it, it was a simple bill, simply said, if you take out an order of protection against somebody, and that order of protection is granted, that you can carry on an emergency basis, 
uh, without your concealed carry license, but also you get expedited training. And if you can't afford the cost of a concealed carry course, then the state will actually subsidize that training for you. Again, these were, you know, very specific circumstances. Uh, this wasn't, you know, a pure constitutional carry bill, which obviously I would support, but but this was a, a step in the right direction, targeting those individuals who, who, who have an acute need uh, to protect themselves. And the Democrats said no to that bill. They, they rejected that bill. I'm hopeful that maybe we can get it across the finish line of Virginia this year. But, it, you know, it seems to me like those are those barriers that are put in place. I mean, th- there is this line of thought, I think, among gun control activists that a gun's never a good idea, right? Uh, you, you, you should never own a gun. Uh, and, and that is simply, look, that's their decision. That's their opinion to make. But nobody has the right to tell you how to best protect yourself. And you're right, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own safety. That that burden lies with you. And if the state is getting in the way of you protecting yourself, then those those laws need to change. I mean, you, you know this firsthand uh, because you were a concealed carry holder. You did carry a firearm, and yet you were disarmed by law uh, at the time in Tennessee, and you were unable to have your firearm with you when your stalker showed up that night and, and murdered your husband. So what, what do you say to those lawmakers who would just say, oh, Nikki, you know, we're, we're really sorry what happened to you, but look, owning a gun, that's not a good idea. That's not the answer here. Um, you know, I think that the individual should be able to make that decision for themselves. And I personally feel like a gun is that great equalizer. I mean, let's face it. I mean, women in general are just not as physically strong as men and more than likely, not always, but more than likely the stalker is a man. Um, There are female stalkers, but in general, um, and it doesn't even matter whether it's a female stalker or or a man, you know, that gun is a way to keep them the heck away from you. Your job is to not go and apprehend the stalker. You know, you're not the police. Your job is to protect your life, your loved one's life, and to keep that person the heck away from you. And if that includes uh, justifiable use of force that turns out deadly, oh, well, you know, um, I just feel like a gun is that great equalizer. And I think individuals should be able to make that decision for themselves and the state needs to get out of the way. Listen, I, I could not agree more. Um, and and look, that's not to say, look, I don't think that that uh, carrying a gun, uh, you know, it, I don't think a gun is a magic wand. Um, but I also don't think that an order of protection is a suit of armor. You know, it, it is a piece of paper to somebody who would choose to uh, ignore or defy that order of protection. Um, and carrying a firearm, as you say, look, it, it, it doesn't provide 100% certainty that you're going to be able to protect yourself, but I think it dramatically improves your odds of survival if your stalker, if that uh, abusive ex, if that person who wants to do you harm decides to ignore that piece of paper that says, don't go near this person. Right. And I think a lot of people in the, you know, I don't know, in the gun rights community, um, <clears throat> when I helped get that law changed in Tennessee, we're you know, victims of violent crime can get a lifetime order of protection. A lot of people, um, you know, said this is silly. You know, it's just a piece of paper. It's never going to work. And I said, you know what? You're you're right. It is just a piece of paper and it's only as good as the person it's against. 
And chances are someone who is extremely dangerous and they don't care about innocent human life, they're not gonna follow that piece of paper. But there's one thing they don't think about and that is God forbid the victim end up having to protect themselves from that stalker. That provides, I would think, a pretty solid defense that you have literally done anything and everything that you could to try and tell that person, stay away from me. You do not want a confrontation. And they chose to ignore that. Then <clears throat> I think that provides for a very good defense for that victim. I would agree with that. And I, and look, I mean, you can make that argument against anything, right? You could say, well, why bother locking your doors at night? Because somebody can just, you know, break a window. Um, I, I, I'm not saying don't get an order of protection. I'm saying don't solely rely on that. I, I think that, uh, you know, and, and I think that you would agree here. I mean, your entire column talks about many things that uh, the victims of stalking can and should do to protect themselves. It's not like there's just, you know, all right, we'll do this one simple thing. And all of a sudden now you're protected. That's not how life works, but not only I would think right. would that order protection provide a, a, a strong, uh, uh, you know, legal basis for you to act uh, in, in self-defense if necessary, but it also does provide legal recourse um, if you can document, again, a violation of that order. Now, again, you're going to have to hope that a prosecutor is going to take that seriously, but but there are potential legal consequences. I would just say don't stop there. Get an order of protection, absolutely, but don't stop there and think that that's going to be enough. Yes, we are both in agreement there. Okay. Nikki, I, you know, again, I, I cannot thank you enough for talking about this. I know that this is painful. I know that you would prefer to talk about all kinds of other things, but this is such an important subject. Uh, and your experience, the, the again, the, the heartache that you have gone through and the pain that you live with on a daily basis, for you to try to channel that, again, to help others avoid um, what happened to you and what happened to your husband, I, I, I again, I just, I, I admire your courage. Um, I thank you for your convictions. And, and I'm just so glad that that we've got your voice out there working to, to help people stay safe and exercise their rights. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on and um, you take care. You too, Nikki. And, and uh, before we let you go, um, obviously we haven't really talked about the uh, crime prevention research center, but uh, you are the executive director of the crime prevention research center. This is a great resource for, for gun owners, for uh, second amendment advocates. Um, what are you guys working on right now at uh, the crime prevention research center? Right now, um, we've been looking at a lot of um, <clears throat> self-defense cases and voter fraud. Um, of course, I'm working on some more op-eds. So we've got several things we're working on. A few things I can't really talk about right okay. now. But, um, well, you know that when you can, you have a microphone and a platform here. We always love spending time with you. And I hope we get a chance to catch up in person at some point this year. All right. Well, thank you. Nicole Gozer joins us from the uh, Crime Prevention Research Center here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. Again, I really do appreciate Nikki Gozer joining us on the program, and I am looking forward to talking to her again very soon. Be sure to check out her column at uh, Town Hall as well. We'll uh, link that at bearingarms.com. Uh, right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there, story out of New York, where 
LaShawn McNeil was the suspect in the shooting of two New York police officers in Harlem over the weekend, the uh, murder of one officer, another officer in critical condition. On probation at the time, five prior arrests, according to uh, law enforcement sources, uh, including an arrest for assaulting an officer. Um, the uh, suspect's mom apparently told police that uh, McNeil was in town from Baltimore uh, to help her out. She had had a medical procedure, and he was you know, there where she was recovering. Uh, they apparently got into an argument, which led her to call 911. Uh, and then when officers arrived, uh, that's when he opened fire. Shooting and killing Officer Jason Rivera, critically injuring Officer Wilbert Mora uh, in Harlem. McNeil himself was shot by the officers. Uh, as of uh, Saturday, they uh, had not yet had a chance to speak to him because he was recovering from surgery. They said that they had spoken to his mom. Um, according to authorities, police recovered a gun at the scene. They believed that it was purchased illegally in Baltimore, Maryland, and then transported illegally to New York. Uh, there was a quote-unquote, high-capacity magazine uh, in that gun as well, also illegal to possess in the state of Maryland. According to police, McNeil had been arrested five times uh, before he shot these two officers. He was on probation after being convicted of a felony drug charge in New York City in 2003. Uh, Four other arrests outside of New York City, including an assault on an officer as well as a weapons possession. CBS2 reports that McNeil also has a history of posting anti-police and anti-government messages on social media, um, which, you know, look, I mean, that's not a crime. But the fact that this guy has, you know, five arrests, granted, going back to 2003, that's still five more arrests than I've had since 2003. Um, this was somebody who was no stranger to the criminal justice system. And this is also an indication, by the way, that the type of gun control laws that are in place in Maryland uh, th- those laws were put in place to to such great fanfare in 2013, the same year that New York uh, approved its SAFE Act. You have the Maryland Firearm Safety Act signed by then-Governor Martin O'Malley. And he said that would make Maryland a safer place. So, you know, again, they banned high-capacity, quote-unquote, high-capacity magazines. Uh, they imposed uh, waiting periods. Uh, they uh, uh, put more restrictions on the purchase of every firearm. Uh, they banned so-called assault weapons. And since then, by the way, homicides in Baltimore have only gone up. They have had seven straight years now of more than 300 homicides in Baltimore, Maryland. Last time you saw a streak like that was in the early 1980s, excuse me, late 1980s, early 1990s. So these new gun control laws put in place in Baltimore didn't do anything to stop violent criminals, but they have prevented not only responsible gun makers from continuing to operate in the state of Maryland, but they have uh, deprived many would-be gun owners of their right to keep and bear arms and put barriers between them and their right to keep and bear arms in many other places as well. Uh, Today's armed citizen story. This is a weird one from Kenosha, Wisconsin. A Kenosha man broke into a home in Racine, allegedly, claimed to be a cop, started yelling, and then was shot by a resident. Yeah. Uh, This was, uh, let's see, Michael Smith, now charged with five felony counts of bail jumping as well as felony counts of burglary with a person lawfully present in the the enclosure as well as impersonating a police officer. This was uh, back on January 15th. He went to a home in Racine and asked the uh, woman who answered the door if her was home. She said, no, he's in the county jail. So then he came back 
allegedly, at like 3.45 the next morning, forced entry into the home of the crowbar and a sledgehammer while yelling, police, search warrant. Mm -hmm. He then went down into the basement where the woman's son had been staying before he uh, went to jail, and he began asking where the son was, and then he started screaming. One of the people in the home was so uh, afraid uh, for their life that they ended up uh, shooting Smith in the leg. Uh, after he was shot, he fled. About an hour later, he showed up at a, a local hospital in uh, Kenosha County, detained after receiving medical treatment. Uh, he is, again, currently facing five felony charges. Uh, at last report, uh, nobody inside the home uh, is uh, facing any charges, although I suppose it is possible if the uh, gun was not legally owned that maybe uh, somebody could face a charge for that as well. But at this point, we have uh, no indication this is anything other than a case of self-defense. We'll try to keep our eyes on uh, any new information that might emerge from uh, that uh, self-defense shooting there in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, finally today, our good deed of the day from uh, Tufts University, where uh, Officer uh, Brett Morava and uh, Lieutenant Glenn McCune in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, to save the life of a utility worker uh, on campus. Now, this was over the summer, uh, late August. According to the university, the uh, worker went into cardiac arrest uh, while on the job. This was in late August. And a, uh, a Tufts employee who drove by the scene saw what was going on, was able to radio the officers for help. Uh, Marava and McCune, the first to respond, they had an automated external defibrillator. They used it to uh, restart the man's heart before he was taken to a nearby hospital. And uh, they just received the uh, an award from the Massachusetts Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. Actually, the second time that the pair has received that award. Marava and McCune also used an AED to resuscitate an employee of Tufts University, went into cardiac arrest back in 2018. Uh, McCune said, uh, quote, it was only after we got these AED units that we were able to bring people back. And the AED has been used successfully on other campuses as well. So uh, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing with the right tools for the job. Uh, Officer Brett Marava, Lieutenant Glenn McCune with the uh, Tufts University Police Department. We thank you for your very good deed. And I thank you for being a part of this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. It is, as I said, good to be back home it was great to be out and about. It definitely made me realize I have been more antisocial <laughs> than I thought over the past couple of years. Uh, and I'd like to rectify that. I'd like to change that. So I, I think the next time that uh, we'll be uh, uh, doing a uh, little two-way traveling uh, right now will be the Great American Outdoor Show. I am uh, I'm thinking I'm going to go up there here in about three weeks or so, the uh, a weekend before Valentine's Day. Is that right? think so something like that maybe the weekend of valentine's day Ooh, if it's that weekend i better talk to missy and say uh, hey how about a romantic road trip to harrisburg pennsylvania but uh we are going to be getting back out on the road and again if i had the opportunity to say hi to you in las vegas i'm glad that i did if i did not have the opportunity to see you i hope that our paths cross at some point this year uh, i know we'll be back tomorrow with more of the latest second amendment news and information so until we speak again be well be safe and be free 